Hello and welcome. This is the 774 NGR podcast. My name is Solu Lopwe Adilari and I'm your host. On the podcast, we delve into issues, any issue, as long as it concerns Nigeria. We talk about topics and stories and issues from across the length and the breadth of the country, and we look to break them down. But we won't just be talking about issues. We'll also put solutions on the table. I'll be talking to analysts, experts, and those on the ground and in the thick of things for the podcast. And it's not just about politics. We'll talk about social issues. We'll talk about religion. We'll talk about tradition. We'll talk about culture. We will go there. And I hope you go there with us by being part of the podcast, subscribing, and also sharing with your network as well. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at 774 underscore NGR. And on Instagram, it's at 774 NGR. If you've missed the first few editions of the podcast, please make sure you check them out. We've discussed the Nigerian economy as well as Nigeria and gender-based violence. Now, this is part two of my conversation on Nigeria's security crisis. If you missed part one, definitely look for it. It helps you with the conversation, provides a base and a foundation for the conversation I've been having with my guest. My guest is Mutala Abdullahi, a reporter with Human Angle Media. He writes on climate and human security trends in Nigeria, as well as Lake Chad and the Sahel. He's also the founder of Guru Initiative, a nonprofit for promoting understanding of climate, environment, and security risk across the continent. Now, if you missed it, I'll just give you a few highlights. We've talked about some of the things that have been happening across the country in terms of security and how security is such a pivotal part of our economic growth, our development, the fact that we're also looking for investors both locally and outside of the country. We've talked about Boko Haram and how it has been more than a thorn in Nigerian sides for over a decade and how unfortunately the security situation in the northeastern part of Nigeria has deteriorated since 2017. We've also looked at the farmers herders crisis and also looked at banditry and kidnapping. We took a look at how different regions of the country have at least a bit of um, a specific type of violence and illegal activity that seems to be uh, predominant in those regions. So that is part of the conversation. We're now expanding the conversation and we're going to be looking at community policing and state policing in the Nigerian context. Can it solve this situation? We'll also take a look at the fact that some governors have tried to broker peace with the bandits, with kidnappers. Is this filling the situation? Are these amnesty programs something that can be sustained in the long run? What happens to justice? We also, of course, look at the solutions. What are the solutions in terms of Nigeria's security crisis. Welcome again. This is the 774 NGR podcast. So you did mention some governors before, and I do want to ask about that. So we had a situation where some northern state governors have tried to broker peace with bandit groups through amnesty programs and promises of development in exchange for peace. But many of these efforts have largely failed, in part because development takes time and governors apparently cannot keep their promises. The attacks continue in states that have offered amnesty, such as Katsina, and those that have not in the mostly Muslim North and in predominantly Christian South. Ordinary Nigerians, their leaders, including imams, priests, and politicians, are on the receiving end every day. Depending on who you believe, Boko Haram has been paid ransom several times for some of the kidnappings that they carry out. 
And we also know, of course, the amnesty program that was brought about for the Niger Delta militants under former president, Yaradwa. Um, Nigeria is ready to either throw money at you and offer you, I, I don't, let me call, not call it a war, but offer you money to stop being violent, or Nigeria is ready to bring down the hammer on you and use violence uh, or use a heavy hand in order to address an issue. But on this particular issue of the amnesties being given, what are your thoughts? Why do you think some states persist in going down a road that is not working and may actually, by all accounts, be feeling the violence because they're then able to use the ransom and the money to buy more arms, to bring more people or more uneducated, unemployed Nigerians into their ranks? What do you think? Hello? Hello, Mutala. So, um, in terms of amnesty, I need it. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Please go ahead. In terms of amnesty and negotiation with criminal groups, uh, the Northwest is also copying from what we have seen in other regions. Uh, yeah. I think in the South side, it, it's much more prevalent where you have state governors engaging with militants and then Having them to surrender their weapons in exchange yes. for some form of recognition and all that, and so uh, in the north waves we also seen that, and this is largely because um, the state governors feel their hands are tight, and it's the best option that they have to solve the problem. Uh, it, well, it may actually be a component of this uh, of the solution, but just like we mentioned earlier it's a multi-dimensional problem and so just having one aspect of it does not solve it, the entire problem uh as part of what is driving conflict in the northwest it's a deeply rooted social grievance about neglect by the state and so if the state is reaching out to groups that have felt neglected and marginalized then that's a component of the peace process but another component needs to be justice for everyone so we need to ensure that criminal groups are dealt with. So but the moment you just open, give a uh, free hand, open, uh, or, or is it an open hand to criminal groups, and then you leave justice out of the process, then there's going to be trouble. Uh, some of these individuals will return to their crimes or others will feel uh, you're recognizing uh, perpetrators of violence against them. Yeah, and then in some instances, it's the perpetrators of violence that recognize why the victims are also then neglected, which yeah. creates another problem. And so, if you're opening up a process to recognize groups, the whole dialogue and peace process, then everyone needs to be on board, and then perpetrators of violence need to be dealt with uh, to deter and to ensure justice. And then victims get a sense of um, a sense of uh, not just a, a sense of justice, but that they get the support that they need, either in yes. rebuilding their communities, rebuilding their lives, and then so this is the only way that both communities can then begin to uh, coexist, and then criminals and within the groups are deterred. Yeah, yeah, deterred yeah. Uh, from that. And then secondly, you need the border security component to ensure that there are no more flow of weapons. However, however, people will continue to look for weapons if you do not fix law enforcement. 
and the mm. criminal justice system. And so when you have a strong law enforcement and criminal justice system, people will have no need to pick up arms and then your border close, uh, your border security mechanism then becomes much more effective. So like we said, uh, the peace and dialogue process needs to be part of a comprehensive uh, uh, security approach that involves all the components working simultaneously to achieve mm-hmm. a goal. Uh, either in bits uh, or what we call the immediate, short and long term uh, so you have what you intend to achieve in terms of the long term and what you need to do to stabilize the region to have stop the violence immediately then the, mm. the next plan and so all everyone needs to know that okay this is the process this is the abc and this is the path we're seeking to achieve the abc so that everyone knows that okay uh this is what we will do now and this is what we'll do tomorrow and this is w- what we'll achieve by doing taking this step but if you just have the negotiations uh, get groups to hand over their weapons and then you do not fix the other problems then you're going to exacerbate the problem sometimes more than what it was prior to your negotiations. And this is what we have seen in in the region. And so also in the Niger Delta, we have seen people go back to their their previous uh, lifestyle and sometimes they become much more ruthless and violent. Yeah, and I know that the Benue situation is one that we can point to as well, where the communities were very upset with the governor, I think um, Samuel Tum, in how he was handling uh, the crisis that came up there as well. Um, it's a situation that no one wishes for, for it to continue as long as it has. And there's a question I hate asking, but I'll ask it. But let me also add to this um, as well. So. According to a report released by SBM Intelligence in May 2020, between the year 2011 and 2020, Nigerians paid at least $18.34 million, that's $7 billion naira, as ransom to kidnappers. The report captured kidnap cases that occurred from June 2011 to the end of March 2020 using data collected from the armed conflict location, the events data center, um, the Council for Foreign Relations, Nigeria Security Council, uh, Security Tracker, I beg your pardon, newspaper reports, and then SBM Intel's own countrywide network of researchers. It's difficult to open a newspaper today and not see a story or a mention of armed violence happening somewhere across Nigeria. Literally every day, there is a new story. In the past few months, we've had farmers beheaded in Bornu, hundreds of boys kidnapped in Kankara and Katsina State. And days after, 80 students were also kidnapped in the same state. Worshippers killed in a mosque in Zamfara State, a bishop kidnapped in Oweri, in Imo State, and on and on and on. Eyewitnesses across the Northwest have said that bandits who attack villages and kidnap and kill come riding in the hundreds, using motorcycles armed with AK-47 rifles and carrying a passenger. It's been said that this is happening right under the nose of the security forces. So briefly, I'm going to go back to Nigeria's security forces and ask that question as well. Do you think there's a complicity, whether at the lowest level or the highest levels of Nigeria's security architecture, is there a complicity in how um, either they choose to look the other way, they're not effectively arming those who are in charge of physically providing security, they're not restructuring as it may be, do you think there's a complicity in how bad the security system or the security situation has gotten in Nigeria? So, um, 
part of what I would say is that this is one of the issues where we should hold the administration responsible uh, for the inability of our security forces to uh, manage the crisis. We know, yes, they cannot solve the crisis because solving the crisis requires the political well. actors, uh, political actors to wake up to their responsibility. And then what uh, these crisis forces are responsible for providing the stability that will lead to development and then addressing of the social economic drivers of these violent crimes according to the country and the insurgency in the Northeast. Uh, however, the security forces also, their activities are also influenced by the by the political system. And so if there's little political will, or in uh, sometimes when there's political will, but there's no political strategy, it becomes a problem. And, and especially in terms of what it is what is our national security strategy? Yes, we have a document that says Nigeria's national security strategy. Uh, however, what are the me mechanisms uh, surrounding the national security strategy? Are we implement? Are we really implementing the national security strategy? And are we investing in a manner that allows us to achieve our national security strategy? Now, when you look at the military, the military is also uh, underfunded uh, and then competing with a lot of other sectors, uh, especially infrastructure and so many other sectors, which means at a time of dwindling revenues. And it's up to the government to find ways to provide the kind of resources the military needs. Uh, resources from personal protect, uh, protective gears, uh, uh, personal protective gears or uh, equipment of each personnel's damage of the helmet, the fact jacket, the kind of rifles they hold, the boots they use, the kind of camp they leave, uh, rotating troops, providing them with the welfare support they need, the medical support they need, uh, to ensure that they they're able to carry out their duties uh, in an effective manner and in a conducive environment. They may have taken an oath to die in, in the service of this country and to pay yeah. make the ultimate sacrifice if the need requires. However, it is the responsibility of the state to ensure that they have the uh, environment and the resources they need to also live and to also achieve their, 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 their objective. And so really, if you're sending troops out to, to combat banditry and they don't have the kind of resources they need, then you're going to create problems, you're going to create casualties, you're going to uh, have a prolonged conflict because the troops will not be able to achieve their objective. And so really it's about ensuring that we invest in our military in a manner that has troops that are functioning in an environment that is conducive for them, that they have the equipment they need uh, to work, uh, uh, and then they have the kind of training they need uh, to be effective. And so that's one component, it's about investing in our military to to ensure that they're able to achieve the objectives that, that that is given to them. And secondly, it's also about really fixing the police and then not deploying the police in areas that they should be deployed and not always deploying the military. Uh, one of the reasons why the military is also having issues with resources is the fact that we are deploying them in a lot of places, stretching yeah. them thin, uh, yeah. their resources, yeah. instead of them 
instead of having them in a particular place where they can be where they can manage their resources in a uh, in a much more effective manner and so but really the military will have to be in the other places as long as we do not overhaul and fix the police and other security agencies ensure that they work together. Uh, for instance, in NSCDC, how are we really making use of the NSCDC? Are we underutilizing the NSCDC? Uh, that's the civil defense call. Yeah. And then how effective is our, 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 is our uh, the intelligence system in our country uh, working? So really it's about, we need really need to go back to the uh, drawing board. Uh, the political uh, elites that are governing this country needs to understand that human security is important yeah. and integrate the social economic policies if they even have any uh, into a much more into a broader uh, policy that ensures both human and national security and then more importantly how do we drive a population from poverty yeah. to productivity and prosperity yeah. this is very yeah. very important we have a yeah. huge population and as long as we have this uh, multi-dimensional poverty, uh, misery, suffering in this country, and then th that will be a recipe for disaster. So we need yeah. to put in place the right policies and investment to move our population from poverty to productivity and, and, and our country to prosperity. Very, very valid. And I, and I hope that when we have these conversations or those who are making the decisions necessary for that change to come about, so they're not looking for quick fixes uh, because we've so entrenched some of these issues that we're talking about starting something now that may not really bear fruit until a generation or even more than, uh, you know. Okay, so a number of things we've mentioned here, and it's just fascinating to really hear you break it down. So what do you think will happen this year, in the next two, three years, if Nigeria does not adequately tackle its security issues? Um, we know that we've been throwing money on it. Our defense budget uh, primarily sometimes takes the large share when we do our annually budgets, not every year. I know that 2015, uh, 2015 2017, defense spending actually declined, but it increased in 2018, I think declined in 2019, it's going back up again. We are also saying that it's because maybe one country did not sell us weapons. Well, we've been getting some weapons, we've been getting some armored vehicles. Unfortunately, one of them apparently ended up in the hands of Boko Haram before it was captured back. But what do you think happens? Paint a picture of a Nigeria that you see maybe this year or even in the next five years if the country doesn't tackle security issues. This is quite a disturbing prediction or scenario to paint. Um, but the reality well, we have to. We, we have to be realistic. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a disturbing reality of where we are and where the trends that we see today will lead us to. And the way, if in terms of a broader picture, what we're saying is almost similar to watching the CNN and then the weather forecast person is telling you that the hurricane is still miles away. However, you're seeing your uh, your neighbor's window is getting blown off. Uh, uh, trees are flying around you but the hurricane is still miles away so this is uh, generally the what the trend is showing us uh in the country and it's very important that we take very no matter how difficult those steps are that we take them to stabilize the violent crimes that happen across the country and that if it means 
having the military with the resources that it needs to stabilize either the, uh, all this conflict in the northwest, the northeast, then following up immediately with a much more effective law enforcement system. So really, I just hope that in the coming days, we see an overhauling of the security architecture of the country and then announcement and also implementation of policies that stimulate the economy, especially uh, especially uh, around low-income communities and rural communities. These are two critical areas that we really need to find a way to improve the living standard of the people. Uh, it will really do a lot to reduce uh, urban crimes and violent crimes in rural areas. And then extend governance. We need, need to see policies and then uh, cooperation between the National Assembly and the Executive to strengthen local government, ensuring that local governments are able to have the resources they need and have the powers they need to provide the kind of governance that we need in rural communities. And then that we strengthen our security institution, uh, be the intelligence communities, the police, uh, and others, uh, the, and also ensuring that we have a management system for our security uh, uh, security organization. When 9-11 happened, there was a massive uh, overhaul of the security architecture in the U.S., and that really made the U.S. to be a much more proactive state in terms of uh, national security. And this is what we need today. We really need our leaders to see tight, uh, have bipartisan cooperation and multi-sectoral cooperation across all levels to strengthen institutions and ensure that we have a proactive security architecture and that we don't tilt our system towards regime security or just national security, that the focus is human security. And it's interesting you bring that up um, because there have been calls almost since I think the beginning of the president's second term. And while we've agreed that this administration may not necessarily be responsible for the root causes of some of the violence and the insecurity we're seeing, they bear responsibility for being the ones in power right now and possibly not doing as much as they could to address it. So we've seen calls from, I think, about the beginning of the second term year of the president for him to sack his security chiefs. And we've seen that um, some of them have actually reached retirement age and their tenure has been extended. He seems to have a lot of faith in them, but we are looking at number of people who are dying almost every week in Nigeria, the number of violent incidents that we're hearing in Nigeria. What do you think that says about how those at the top, those at the helm of affairs actually view the situation? Um, the question typically would be, is there political will? But I think that's a trite question when it comes to Nigeria, because oftentimes it's not there. It's just expedient in some ways to either throw money at it, to say there's political will, to say they will do this and they'll do that. But at the end of the day, we know that the will to take the necessary, difficult, hard decisions is usually very lacking. So what do you say on the other side about an administration that is keeping people who are the ones responsible for deployments, for strategy, for making sure financing, keeping them in play when we've seen insecurity increase in the past two years? Well, um, I think the summary of what we've seen in terms of the service chiefs and the president is one that shows the kind of uh, country we live in and the kind of governance we, we have. 
then what clearly indicates is the uh, uh, and I'll explain why. Uh, what indicates is the poor accountability and transpa transparency in terms of governance in Nigeria. The, con the president has a based on the uh, uh, terms of uh, service of uh, members of the armed forces, uh, the act that guides the terms of service, and also mm -hmm. the constitution that allows the president to keep his service chiefs because he serve at his pleasure. However, the and secondly, again, uh, there is another debate that says even if you change the service chiefs, it does not change anything, and it kind of makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. One is because uh, the, the political system, so it's really the one that plays a key role in addressing uh, the uh, security crisis that we have in this country. And then when we keep talking about the service chiefs, uh, the military service chiefs, it also shows the fact that our our national security uh, perception is flawed because we believe that the military is the solution to all our problems. And we and yeah. again, we keep complaining about the fact that we are misusing the military and always using the hammer approach. So it kind of makes sense. However, in most places, when you have a crisis where the military is involved or a security agency is involved, you have this kind of casualties. It's even even if uh, a chief spends one day in office and you have a very bad uh, crisis or incident, it's okay to sack such an individual. Individual. I'm not to talk of a situation where you have a. Uh, this crisis has been ongoing for months uh, and, or even, let's say, years. And then you have lots of people calling for the sack of the service chiefs. Uh, and the president actually saying, so the major problem why I said there's little accountability and transparency is the fact that even though the president has the right to keep his chiefs, mm -hmm. the president also has the responsibility to, to speak to Nigerians to say, this is why I'm keeping my chiefs because of A, B, C. The president was elected by Nigerians and he has a responsibility to speak to Nigerians on his strategy and, and to tell Nigerians that, okay, I'm keeping these chiefs because they are working. So which means if the president says, I'm keeping these chiefs because they're working, then Nigerians then assess and say, you mean so, 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 and so number of dead is working, then it means you are the failure. So the there needs to be a communication on the service chiefs, it does not make sense to maintain this form of radio silence. Uh, we, we do not want, the, the, the president was elected uh, while the service chiefs were appointed by him. And so he's answerable to the Nigerian people, uh, though the service and why the services are, are not answerable to him. And so he's, yeah. it's up to him to really tell Nigerians that, okay, I'm keeping my service chiefs, this is why, and this is. The reason, this is the reason why I'm keeping them. And so it's up to, when he does that, then it's up to Nigerians to say, okay, uh, this makes sense. But when you just maintain this radio silent, it's really bad. Uh, yeah. It's bad yeah. for public trust, bad for public confidence. And again, tenure of the services has huge impact on the workings of the security services. And when we're talking about reforming the system, and it also involves having new, new, uh, new heads, new ideas, new policies, even though we know that the political system plays a key role in how these institutions function. And yeah. so I, in summary, it's the president needs to ensure that um, his approach to, to security is one of empathy, one of mm -hmm. accountability, and one of transparency. And that means for me, 
when I hear you say that he should ensure that's his approach, uh, let me just ask you a yes or no question. Do you think that has been the approach so far from this administration, from this president? Yes or no? <laughs> Is a, a yes or no? A no? Uh, if, if we are approaching security based on, uh, if we are approaching security based on empathy, based yeah. on transparency and accountability, I can assure you that we will have made enormous progress in resolving the security challenges in the country in mm. the past. Uh, the administration has spent over six years. We will have made huge progress if uh, empathy, transparency, and accountability were at the core of how the presidency was behaving. Okay. All right. So we're going to start wrapping up. And I said we'll talk about solutions. And throughout this conversation, you've had a bit and pieces of solutions coming into the conversation. Um, so then how do we solve these issues? Um, obviously, you've talked about it that you don't believe we're being strategic in addressing insecurity, be it with herders, farmers, uh, be it with uh, Boko Haram, be it with the uh, violence that we see, the type of violence that we see in the Southeast. Um, there doesn't seem to be a strategy, a cohesive one that involves everything, not just throwing force, armed forces and, and military at it. So how do we solve these issues and I expect to hear okay let me not say what I expect to hear let me just <laughs> let you hear and say it then I'll tell you if, I, if I've heard the things that I expected to hear because I remember sitting in a press briefing um, for the United uh, States yeah the United States Embassy many many years ago and they talked about a three-pronged approach to how Nigeria could solve Boko Haram insurgency and let me tell you that security was number three it was not the priority it was not the number one answer but let me hear your answer. How do we solve this? And is there a difference in how we have to tackle the bandits and kidnappers versus how we have to tackle uh, terrorists and insurgency? So uh, I would say we have to follow up the solutions in a multi-layered approach, uh, not just multi-layered, but multi-sector. And then uh, the first objective is to stabilize the conflict areas, uh, stabilize them for the next phase or for the follow-up phase. I will not call it the next phase because by saying the next phase, then it will be at any time for follow-up phase, which means that uh, once the first part is done, the second part is work or happens concurrently uh, or simultaneously or in whatever manner, but that ensures that there is a, that there is a process. And so this involves going back and building a strategy for each region, each state, working with the state governors and then to uh, find ways between National Assembly and the Executive uh, to strengthen institutional framework of our security services. Uh, to overhaul and to strengthen uh, the capacity and capabilities of these institutions. Uh, this is a long-term yeah. investment. Uh, uh, and this is a long, uh, that uh, the, the decade or more. However, there are areas where we can have quite feel the impact in one example was in 2015 and 2014, 2015, when the uh, the insurgency in the Northeast was going to be was going to cost us uh, uh, 
to lose the election. Uh, there were some immediate investments that were made uh, in expanding the capacity of the military, uh, training of uh, soldiers, uh, special operations soldiers in Belarus, uh, provision of new equipments uh, that were suited for the kind of uh, threat that we're going, uh, the soldiers were facing. Uh, so there was a, 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 I would not call it a shock approach that helped to retool certain aspects of the military uh, to tackle the threat of Boko Haram. And it was this approach that helped to, uh, help led to the capture of communities uh, in the first quarter of uh, 2015. And then this same retooling that happened in also helped the current administration to achieve a lot of the successes that they celebrate. But uh, because there was no strategy on their part to expand the retooling mm -hmm. and to sustain, to expand the retooling across the different branches of the armed forces, and then to ensure that uh, investment that we made did not uh, suffer from attrition. Uh, that means equipments are not uh, lost due to lack mm -hmm. of maintainers or, and then to just morale uh, is maintained that they are able to be rotated uh, as, as when due and that they have the, uh, stuffs like basic accommodation that they need, medical support yeah. and all that. So really it's about having to find areas where we can quickly retool the military, uh, the, both the military, the police to absorb the security threats that we're facing across the country immediately. Uh, so it's a form of stabilize the environment. So what kind of investment that we need? So do we need uh, to train our security forces uh, with new skills immediately? Uh, do we need to send them abroad uh, in terms of areas where we have bilateral corporations? And then how do we really need to send them to areas where we have to pay money for them to get the training they need? And then how long are we going to send them there? Uh, if we cannot do that, can we get those trainers here in Nigeria where those training with our two security forces that will be responsible for this uh, action, get trained while they are also doing their job because it's possible to train people in the field. We saw that also in 2015 with the use of the South African machine, um, uh, PMC, private military contractors, uh, yeah. and training uh, one of the special operations, uh, one of the components Branches. of the special forces, mm. special forces battalion. So they were trained in the field. Uh, as the training was going on, they were also participating in the combat operation, and this is very possible. So, do we, so this is what we need now immediately to build the capacity of the military in terms of both long and short term. And then, so first is the strategy from the political side that says, one, we need to stabilize these regions. Two, this is the more amount of money we need to invest in our rural areas in the northeast. We need to invest in our rural areas in the southeast uh, and then south south or and in the northwest. And this, in terms of providing development to the people, uh, uh, the providing social amenities. Then, as I said earlier, apart from just those institutions, then we talked about local government. So, as we're doing that, we're also fixing our local government. So yeah. and and we are also fixing our police. And so once the military is able to stabilize this region, you have a restoration of law and order. Mm -hmm. We have a restoration mm -hmm. of of local governance. Then we come to the urban areas where areas that we need just also in the same thing those rural and urban areas areas where we need more investment in education, 
what more investment in supporting families uh, and then how do we really begin to change our curriculum to ensure that uh, we provide young people with skills that they need uh, for the future and then also investment in adult education because we have a lot of people who are either undereducated or mm. uneducated and how do you ensure that we provide them with the skills they need uh, contemporary skills and even if it's in agriculture that they have agricultural skills that helped in providing them with better productivity and then not just uh, it's not agricultural participating in the primary form of agriculture that means a cultivation of land it shouldn't be for everyone there are people yeah. who would be of more value within the value who will be of more value uh, either processing these agricultural products into a finished product and tell just adding value to the entire agro system and not just yeah. about that ensuring that we fix our technical and vocational education providing people with skills that, that they need and when we you can imagine the full effect of investing in our technical and vocational uh, education is that we also have people who will be able to see problems in their communities and then develop solutions yes yes so either development of mechanized uh, for, uh, seed, uh, seed planters and also many other things because usually they have the skills there uh, having agricultural colleges, fishery colleges that ensure that people are able to engage in sustainable farming, uh, sustainable uh, farming, farming, and then also ensuring that pastoralists have nomadic education that improves uh, their lifestyle. How the weather animals uh, they also they also want to have good life uh it's mm. not like yeah it, uh, moving in a nomadic uh form is their own is a way of life for them uh, but that way of life was shaped for a reason uh, it was because yeah. they were searching for greener pastures we became part of them but when greener pastures are available in a place uh where they do not need to go out to feed their cattle uh, their cattle are much more healthy they have they get to raise much more healthy family they will top such an approach but it also requires a multi-sectoral uh, effort to provide them with the support infrastructure they need uh, to yeah. ensure that they don't need to move around and then provide them with the education they need and to really absorb them into the wider society and not just uh, neglect such a community so uh, and like generally like i stated it's a multi-dimensional effort we need to yeah. fix governance we need to provide uh, social economic uh, solutions to our problems, uh, stimulate the economy, especially at the lower levels, uh, to get more people into productivity, uh, fix the law enforcement and, uh, and the military. These are the two important critical aspects of both short. Uh, everything has its own different short and uh, long term uh, uh, approaches. There are areas mm -hmm. where we can achieve results immediately. Uh, mm -hmm. and then there are others that will have to wait for a long time. Okay. I, I think, of course, as we know, this is, as we've talked about throughout this podcast, there's been, it's a multidimensional, very complex, multi-layered um, conversation about righting the wrongs that are there with Nigeria's security architecture, about the insecurity of it as well. Um, and I think this is just the beginning. This is 2021. We have an election coming up in two years, but as it is with Nigeria, by the middle of this year, you'll still, you will start hearing so much. What do you know about people's posters flooding their, their state as people try to position themselves and jostle? So we're going to hear a lot of people talk about, I can provide security, I'll make sure there's security, but it has to be paramount. 
economic fortunes are tied to security, tourism, which makes more money. I, I, I want to shout it to people, makes more money than oil is tied to security. Better standard of living is tied to security. Food security is tied to security. So if we really want to see progress coming out of a recession, progress for um, the, the continent's largest economy and the world's most populous black nation, we need to get the security situation right. And that's the thing we must address. Um, Mutala Ablai, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I look forward to having you back as a guest on the 774 NGR podcast. I really thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I just quite an, an interesting conversation. And uh, we just hope that our leaders will wake up and then have a much more broader sense of what security is. As we are ending up, you said something about the 2023 election. Uh, we should please not, uh, that's where our national security uh, uh, starts from. We shouldn't really we should ensure that leaders that we elect are people who have blueprints and have strategies, not just vibes and uh, and and then uh, big words. Did you say not just vibes? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we. That's what we are. We are. Just, vibes, we and we're looking for a savior. We're looking for a messiah. <laughs> yeah, and that that's the problem. People with zero strategy just. Uh, they keep saying we'll provide security, we'll defeat Boko Haram, we'll do that, we'll do that. But they actually have no no plans or uh, no strategy of this is what we're yeah. doing. They're going to invest, for instance, 70 billion, let's assume 70 billion dollars in the military, uh, 20 billion dollars in the police. This is how we're going to get the funding and this is how we're going to invest it. This is the number, this is the years we'll be taking uh, doing that investment. Man, this is the ripple effect of that investment yeah. and yeah. so really it's not so we need to ensure that people would, we do away with folks that are just give us vibes definitely <laughs> before we do vibes inshallah <laughs> that's a reference to yc i hope it doesn't offend anybody that's a reference is uh yeah i think it's yc or either reminisce uh, one of nigeria's uh really really popular rappers all right thank you so much again i look forward to having a conversation with you as we continue looking at security such an important component of our national life and we need to continue to emphasize um that we recognize we're not getting it right and that we can actually get it right Mutala, uh thank you so much again have a great day and i will see you next time okay all right have a great day too Tony. <laughs> you too okay bye so we have come to the end of this episode of the 774 ngr podcast um thank you to my guests so much for joining me um Mutala ablai reporter with human angle media writing on climate and human security trends in nigeria as well as lake chad he's also the founder of goro initiative which is a non-profit for promoting understanding of climate environment and security risk on the continent so don't forget to follow us on twitter uh, we are at 774 underscore ngr and on instagram at 774 ngr if you missed the first few editions of the podcast please check them out and make sure you share with your network and let us know what you think until next time i'm julie lockway